Hello and welcome to our final course Hivees for 2020. My name is David Hasty, Senior Associate in Causes Projects Practice Group, and I'm joined by Cause Consultant Wayne Josick and Senior Associate Lachlan Tassel from Causes Brisbane Office. We're looking at three interesting cases for you today. First, I'll be looking at the decision of the Federal Court in Icon Co and Liberty Mutual Insurance, which deals with the fallout from an insurance point of view from the well-publicised Opal Tower development in Sydney. Secondly, Wayne will discuss the Victorian Court of Appeals decision in Leader Projects and Zeng, which is an interesting decision considering delay and the difficulties that can arise concerning the assessment of damages. Finally, Lachlan will look at the Queensland Court of Appeals decision in Chapel of Angels and Hennessy Building, which considers questions around unlicensed building work, reasonable remuneration and the availability of quantum merit. But as I flagged, I'll kick off. So... The case that I'll be discussing today, as I've flagged, is Icon Co and Liberty Mutual, which was um, heard by the Federal Court of Australia. This is a case that I'm sure we have all heard about, frankly, for all the wrong reasons. In late 2015, Icon Co was contracted to design and construct the 37-storey high-rise Opal Tower in Sydney for a contract sum of, let's call it, roughly $150 million. Construction commenced in uh, late 2015 and PC was achieved in August 2018. However, within the 12-month DLP, what happened was we started seeing major cracks being identified within wall panels, floor slabs and hobs on level three of the Opal Tower building. What this led to was essentially $31 million in rectification costs incurred by ICON to remedy these particular defects that I've just flagged. Now, where this particular dispute um, is interesting is that ICON was insured with Liberty Specialty Markets and QBE Underwriting Limited. Um, However, given the nature of the defects, uh, both Liberty and QBE refused to indemnify ICON. So the question before the court and what the court had to ultimately determine was whether the equitable remedy of rectification can operate to correct a document, in this case insurance policies, that don't accurately reflect the bargain between the contracting parties. Justice Michael Lee in this particular instance held that it can be. However, the important takeaway here is that rectification requires clear and convincing proof. Now, in this dispute, ICON commenced proceedings against Liberty and QBE, and effectively there were two heads of claim. The first was against Liberty, and there were three subsets of this particular claim. The first was a runoff claim, the second a statutory extension of coverage claim, and the third a rectification claim. The claim that ICON Co brought against QBE was a lot more streamlined, and that was that ICON sought a declaration that the defects were in connection with, as I quote, a product as defined by the QBE policy. But I'll begin with the claims that ICON Co brought against Liberty. So with regards to the first claim being the runoff claim, Justice Lee held that this particular claim required 
examination of extrinsic evidence. And what this led the court to find was that in light of the party's commercial positions, his honour held that ICON could not reasonably have expected the liberty policy to continue throughout the defects liability period unless it was expressly represented that that would be the case. Here, based on the extrinsic evidence, that was not the case. This position was clear as ICON had failed to expressly request runoff cover and nor did it provide a list of uh, contracts requiring such cover. So this particular claim failed. The second claim that ICON brought against Liberty was the statutory extension of coverage claim. Now, here ICON argued that declarations and endorsements made in relation to the Liberty policy gave rise to a new project-specific policy. Now, ICON argued that Liberty had failed to provide notice of the expiry of its policy, therefore Liberty was required to indemnify it under Section 58 of the Insurance Contracts Act. However, His Honour again rejected this particular argument on the basis, again, that endorsements are to be treated as variations to the existing agreement and further, ICON had failed, and this is the important point, ICON had failed to induce, to adduce, any evidence to prove that such project-specific policies were usual to renew. The third claim that ICON brought against Liberty was a rectification claim. Now, here they had a bit more success. Justice Lee held that there was a common intention between the party that the Liberty, Liberty policy would provide insurance for the project until the completion of the DLP even if the annual period of insurance had expired. Now, His Honour concluded that the Liberty policy was to be rectified by the inclusion of a further document, which was um, an an annexure to the policy. His Honour noted that project-specific certificates of insurance and emails between the parties were compelling evidence of the party's common intention as references to the DLP were frequent in the evidence that was adduced. Now, this was reinforced by the fact that Liberty was unable to point to any communication expressly excluding the DLP from the negotiations between the parties. Finally, we turn our attention to the QBE claim. Now, again, I said this was a more straightforward claim and the court thought so as well. Justice Lee held that the project and its constituent parts satisfied both the plain English definition of product and the the defined term in the QBE policy, given that the project was able to be supplied, installed, manufactured or erected. Now, as the defects were in connection with the particular product as defined in the policy, ICON succeeded in its claim against QBE. Wayne, I'll throw to you. Hi, everyone. Uh, the case that I'd like to talk about today is called Leader Projects and Zone. So it's a case decided in the Court of Appeal in the Supreme Court of Victoria a few months ago. Uh, this is a real end-of-year special. Um, it's a fascinating case. One of the really nice things about it is that the principal legal issue is constrained. It's about the assessment of damages to breach a contract. Now, I think the really interesting thing about that is that the principle is one that a primary school student could memorise. So the idea is that the plaintiff should be put in the position that they would have been in had the contract been fully performed. So a primary school student could remember that. 
But when you have to apply that principle from Robinson and Harmon, we see that very experienced appellate judges differ in the approach. So that's the, the great uh, the great issue in leader projects. It allows us to explore how we assess damages for breach of contract. Uh, the really nice thing, I think, about this case is that the facts are absolutely fascinating. Uh, they go back to about 2011 when the plaintiff uh, bought uh, the entire level 87 of Eureka Tower in Melbourne. It's a very well-known, substantial tower. And so the idea was that the plaintiffs would use part of that area as a, a private art gallery. So they have a very well-known uh, contemporary Chinese art museum that they were planning to put there. Uh, and there are also going to be some uh, residential aspects, so a couple of bedrooms, kitchens, so on. So they bought in 2011. 2013, they entered into a fit-out contract, a standard construction contract, uh, and the contract sum was give or take $1.2 million. Now, the critical thing to understand here is that that contract did not include a time for completion. And as a result, it didn't include any liquidated damages or anything like that. So the first issue that we have here is, well, when do they have to complete? And the law has little problem in supplying an implied term that uh, they must complete within a reasonable time. So that, I think, is, is fairly easy to deal with. It's fairly easy to work out for a court to decide uh, whether that reasonable time has passed. If it has, uh, then the plaintiff's entitled to damages. Fine. But how do we assess the damages? So as I said, Robinson Harmon tells us really easily we are simply trying to put the plaintiff uh, in the position they would have been in had the contract been fully performed. But how precisely do you measure the quantum? Now, let me give you a couple of arguments that were raised at various points, different courts and tribunals in this case. So one possibility is maybe you're focusing on the loss of use and enjoyment. In that case, perhaps you could think about the rental value of the property. Or maybe you could think about wasted expenditure. So maybe you had to pay owners, corporation fees, those sorts of things. That's one approach. Another approach is maybe you look at damages for disappointment, inconvenience, vexation, those sorts of things. That's another you know, conceivable approach. Another approach would be to think about actual loss of income. So if you're going to be um, receiving money because people want to exhibit art there, for example, um, you could point to those things. So they're very different ways of measuring the loss that the court's trying to compensate for. So this gets to the Court of Appeal. Uh, three highly respected judges giving separate judgments. Uh, all of them agree that the plaintiffs, uh, the zones, are entitled to more than nominal damages. But how do we assess that? So what they're on is accept is that this is quite an unusual situation. Uh, and I suppose the distinguishing feature here is that they, the plaintiffs weren't really trying to use this 87th level of Eureka Tower as an income-generating project, but they weren't planning to live there permanently either. They might be there occasionally here and there, but they weren't going to be living there as a rule. So that makes it quite complex. Now, the reasoning is really curious. Uh, in this case, their honours rely on comparisons drawing on maritime law. 
And so this is uh, the, the, the nearest uh, similar treatment because you're thinking about a primary focus on the costs that have been incurred, things like owners' corporations fees, council rates, electricity, water charges, so all those things you accept, I think, are reasonable, reasonably foreseeable consequences of the breach through late completion. So the idea is that the compensation here, the damages reflecting the cost of owning the property. So it's not about the rent foregone or those sorts of things. You are simply looking at those costs uh, arising from ownership in that period between when the works should have been completed and when they were. So in many respects, it's not the most obvious way of uh, assessing damages. So that then leads to the follow-up question, which is, is this a general principle? Now, on this point, we have a split in the court. So on the one hand, Justice Kaye suggests that where you have property that's only intended for personal use and it's made unavailable because of a breach of contract, the fit-out works are still going on, then the general principle, according to Justice Kaye, is that you would be awarding damages in this way, uh, reflecting the cost of owning the property in that period. Uh, now, the other two judges in the Court of Appeal, Justice McLeish and Tate, uh, shy away from that conclusion and they say that there are too few cases to, to be so uh, firm uh, in saying that this is a general principle and they emphasise that this is something that would need to be assessed on the facts of each of the cases. And with respect, I think there's a lot to be said for that view that the curious facts here lead to what is perhaps uh, a surprising remedy. So just to remind you, the critical point here is the fit-out works are late. Everybody accepts that. The plaintiffs can't use their own property. That's breach of contract. But how do we measure the damages on these facts, at least? The Court of Appeal tells us that what we do is look to the damages uh, assessed on the basis of the cost of owning the property. So owners' corporation fees, council rates, electricity, those sorts of things. So again, really important reminder about the practical complexity of assessing damages for breach of contract. Easy to state the general principle, very hard to apply it, uh, particularly on interesting facts like this. Many thanks for that, Wayne. Lachlan, I'll now throw to you. Can you tell us about the Chapel of Angels and Hennessy building decision? Thanks, David. So um, Chapel of Angels is a case that considers uh, the remuneration payable for unlicensed and licensed building works. Um, so in this case, Chapel of Angels engaged Hennessy Building um, to construct a wedding chapel, a car park, and some other ancillary works at Montville here in Queensland. Um, Hennessy held, held two licenses, being a builder low-rise license and a carpentry license. Um, now, during the course of the works, the parties fell into dispute. Um, chapel of Angels retook possession of the site um, and refused to pay any uh, amounts um, claimed by Hennessy as at that date. Um, Chapel of Angels then initiated um, proceedings in the District Court of Queensland, seeking various relief, um, including restitution of all monies paid under the contract on the basis that Hennessy did not have the appropriate licence class uh, to construct the chapel, which was a Class 9B Type B building, uh, being a two-storey building. 
Um, so Hennessy defended that claim uh, and they counterclaimed uh, for the reasonable remuneration under Section 42 of the QBCC Act or alternatively on the basis of a quantum merowish. Now, at first instance, Judge Porter determined that Hennessy did not have the appropriate licence class to build the chapel, but it was licensed to complete a substantial part of the chapel works, uh, the car park and the external works. Nonetheless, on the basis that some of those works fell outside of um, Hennessy's licences, Judge Porter ordered that Chapel of Angels was entitled to recover all payments that had been made uh, to Hennessy, um, which was approximately $632,000. However, in assessing Hennessy's counterclaim um, for reasonable remuneration under the QBCC Act, Judge Porter accepted Hennessy's expert evidence and ordered uh, Chapel of Angels to pay approximately $700,000 to Hennessy. Now, Chapel of Angels wasn't happy with that decision, so they ultimately um, appealed to the Queensland Court of Appeal. Um, However, its application was uh, filed four months late. So um, in dealing with uh, the application for leave to appeal, um, the Court of Appeal had to consider uh, whether there were uh, reasonable prospects of the appeal uh, and whether there was... uh, good reason for that delay in filing its application. Now, ultimately, the the Court of Appeal held that um, leave should not be given um, on the basis that the appeal had limited merit um, and that there wasn't a good reason for that delay in filing that notice of appeal. Now, in coming to that decision, the Court of Appeal um, provided some very useful commentary on the prohibition against unlicensed building work and that reasonable remuneration mechanism um, for unlicensed works under Section 42, subsection 4 of the QBCC Act. So that's interesting, Lachlan. So what did the Court of Appeal have to say about the reasonable remuneration mechanism? So as I said earlier, at first instance, the District Court found that most of the works performed under the contract fell within um, uh, Hennessy's building licence classes. Um, However, a small portion did not. Um, So I think the key issue here is how uh, works are to be priced um, when only a a small portion of those works are unlicensed uh, and how uh, the reasonable remuneration mechanism in the QBCC Act ought to apply. Now, in um, considering those issues, the Court of Appeal um, went to the history of the the particular section of the Act, um, which provided that prohibition uh, and recognised that uh, in its previous iterations, um, the prohibition uh, was such that a contractor had no uh, entitlement under contract or otherwise um, to recover remuneration if it performs any works which were unlicensed. Uh, that position changed under the Act in, in about 1999 uh, and the introduction of the reasonable remuneration mechanism was found. Now, as to the extent to which the reasonable remuneration mechanism applies, um, the Court of Appeal said that subsections 42.3 and 42.4 of the QBCC Act are concerned with the building work actually performed outside the scope of the builder's licences. The Court of Appeal said at paragraph 53 that in this kind of case, uh, the building contract is unenforceable by the contractor in relation to the unlicensed work where, as in this case, and as is commonly the case, 
the promise to carry out the unlicensed work is not severable from the balance of the contract, the contractor is unable to enforce the contract at all. So any non-contractual right the contractor may have to recover reasonable remuneration for the unlicensed work is restricted by Section 42 sub 4, and the contractor is is exposed to prosecution for an offence for contravening at least one of the two prohibitions in Section 42.1. From the consumer's perspective, the results of this construction also do not seem obviously unreasonable. The consumer may be found liable to pay reasonable remuneration, not limited in accordance with Section 42.4, only in relation to the benefit the consumer has obtained as a result of the contractor carrying out building work for which it held a licence of the appropriate class. And the consumer will benefit from the limits in Section 42.4 in respect of any work for which the contractor did not hold a licence of the appropriate class. So the Court of Appeal's reasoning suggests that if the promise to pay for the unlicensed works is severable from the promise to pay for the licensed works under the contract, um, that reasonable remuneration mechanism in Section 42.4 of the QBCC Act will only apply to the unlicensed works and the contract will remain enforceable in relation to the licensed works. If, on the other hand, as was seen in this decision, um, the licensed works cannot be severed from the unlicensed works, the reasonable remuneration mechanism will apply to both. My name is David Hasty. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us in 2021. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.